This episode is brought to you by Tooth & Claw Travel. Do you want to get off your couch and see the world you've only glimpsed in cinematic masterpieces like The Revenant, 127 Hours, Mosquito Coast, Alive, and Castaway? Well, Tooth & Claw Travel has planned an exciting vacation just for you. They'll take you and that special someone, or your whole family, and ferry you to some remote, pristine location far from the hustle and bustle and inconveniences of urban life. A place that's guaranteed to be beyond restaurants, stores, cell phone coverage, police and hospitals, where you can experience life as humankind was intended in its natural state. Just imagine it. You and your kids are helicoptered to some dense malarial no-man's land, dressed lightly in your athleisure wear and crunching on snow cones. You're shown a sketchy path into God's majestic wilderness. After signing a few dozen non-disclosure agreements and total liability waivers, you're sent off with a hearty slap on the back. Meet you here in five days. This is a bonding and educational experience that will stick with your child as long as he or she lives, however long that is. And it's probably totally safe. And now, this summer, our listeners can secure a cabin on Tooth & Claw Travel's newly purchased cruise ship, the famous and luxurious Diamond Princess, a getaway cruise without the imposition of pesky staff. How exciting it will be as you and your loved ones stroll casually through the hallways and spacious decks looking for their next meal and scouting for a working toilet. It's like a cross between the movies Titanic and The Shining. So gorgeous. Just book your week using the promo code REREAD, one word. And thank you, Tooth & Claw Travel, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolfe. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Wow, Craig, we had a lot of comments. This is going to be a big, long comment section. And a lot about earlier chapters again. Not as much about the mirrors as I right. thought we might get, but maybe that's coming. So we're, we're throwing these two-hour episodes at you, so it takes time to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have, I'll try to go through this as fast as possible, but if there was something I could leave out, I'd leave it out. On Facebook and Reddit, Craig, you posted an update to your Gene Wolfe critical biography critical in the literary sense. Uh, this is an ongoing project on your part, and we're working on developing a permanent place for it. Yep. We need a better place than Google Drive, but at least it's there. And I wanted to put that out for everybody who's working. In fact, I saw that the um, Gene Wolf Appreciation page got a note from someone who's working on Devil in a Forest, I think it was. They're working on a paper mm -hmm. on it. So it seems like something that should be out there for everybody. And I'll try and keep it up to date. And definitely, if you out there are writing something, let us know. And we will add it to that list because hopefully that will be up there forever <laughs> in some way or another. Okay, well, let's get right to it. Uh, chapter 20, Father Aniri's Mirrors. On subreddit, JazzCat1 says... The discussion of Father Aniri's friendship with young girls as a possible association with Charles Dogson, a.k.a. Lewis Carroll, reminds me of Wolf's story, The Rubber Bend, which portrays Charles Dogson avatar as a physicist studying time. Yes, and in that story, Wolf also references the allegation that Dogson might have been a pedophile, 
which is a subtext here, I think, as well, which is like unlikely to be the case. But then again, that short story parodies unfavorably the literary rumor that Shakespeare's works were written by someone else. So it's possible Wolf was not a believer in that allegation either. Mm-hmm. Also on Reddit, Ubicon has a lot of thoughts on those mirrors. He says, thanks for the explanation about the mirrors. You're welcome, Ubicon. I'm also fascinated in what the mirrors mean symbolically and metaphorically. I agree that the explanation should be treated in a writerly way rather than literal physics. We know that Wolf was inspired by Borges. The mirrors are the reverse of the usual process where the object creates reflection. And that reminds me of Baudrillard's claim that the map precedes the territory in his Simulation and Stimulacra essays. Quite philosophical. Do you know anything about Baudrillard? Oh, yeah. Baudrillard was one of the, he wasn't one of the big postmodern, well, he was big, but postmodern guy. He's not like Derrida, Foucault, and those guys. But um, yeah, very popular, especially in the 80s, all about how there is no real and all that there is is reflections of other things. Now, he was talking more about modern society and a kind of world where everything is reflection of advertising and desires and who you are is just a reflection of things in the society that make you. But um, yeah, I do think, though, he did wrote an early book called Simulation and Simulacra, where he talked about the difference between a simple sort of copy of something and things that function basically as copies without an original. And that's where it gets postmodern, that everything is simply like a copy of some other things. Hmm. And it's usually stuff that's used more for social criticism kinds of things, like when you don't have a real you know, moral center and everything is just image after image after image. It got very popular, especially in like the early days of the World Wide Web, where everything was a link to everything else. <laughs> that, that, that was sort of Baudrillard's heyday, hmm. I think. <laughs> so I, I definitely see how you can start to think that with this part, especially when he talks about how the reflection brings something into existence. I think though, in the end, Wolf would definitely go in a different direction than Baudrillard does. Cause Baudrillard is much more of a kind of like, we're at the end of history and you know, everything has been completely emptied out of actual meaning. Whereas Wolf would say that as will come up not too long, that Wolf is a little bit of a Platonist in which copies have to be copies of something real. And so even if you do create a copy first, it's going to have to bring something real into existence. So, you know, Wolf is just working with a, a different set of ideas. But I don't know, maybe if somebody out there is really into talking about how postmodernism turns back into Plato, then Wolf <laughs> would be your guy. Who knows? There's, there's certainly a fun way to take that. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. In fact, I recall a statement from well, it's kind of it's kind of involved, but in in Long Sun, where um, where Rose in Marble says, "I'm you know now I used to be a human, but now I'm just these little bits of code, but I'm still a person because I always was." Yeah. So Ubicon agrees with my conclusion that Damnina, who returns for supper that she's not the original Domnina who went into the mirrors. Of course, I go even further and say that the fish that they are checking out is the new Domnina, which has creepy implications. But enough of my hijacking uh, Ubicon's comment. He says, what is spooky or uncanny here is that the image in the mirrors of the little girl's faces is that these are different girls or potential girls rather than the reflection of the same girl. 
this is a longstanding trope in horror movies and literature where you look away and your reflection moves independently, or there's a crack in the mirror, etc. This also reminded me of Jacques Lacan's mirror stage, which is a form of self-alienation when you realize that the reflection in the mirrors is not really you, but a sort of ideal version or misrecognition. I think this story of Damina is a mini wolf horror story. Interesting. We got more postmodernism going on because Lacan is the big <laughs> postmodern Freud. Oh. The mirrors do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I like the idea there about how the mirrors are not reflections of the same thing, but they're actually slightly different. And it's that difference. Um, in fact, here to totally geek out, if you want to get another name in there, let's get Deleuze and Difference and Repetition, where every repetition is slightly different from the previous ones. But never mind. That doesn't we don't have to go <laughs> full on postmodern geekdom here. But um, but no, I like that idea because that starts to get into things that we're again gonna talk about today with cycles and and not exactly a multiverse, but I guess it is kind of a multiverse idea of a sort. And by the way, that is something that terrifies me about mirrors, that idea that you look in there and <laughs> your reflection is not you, but something else. But um, that point about the mirror stage with Lacan, yeah, that's kind of one thing that Lacan talks about where what happens when you grow into adulthood is sort of like the, it, I don't know whether he meant it to be literal or not, but it's kind of like that moment where you realize that who you are is actually kind of a split thing, that when you're a kid, everything is sort of immediate and you know, your world is confined and your needs are quickly met and whatnot. But when you become an adult, you quickly realize that who you are is a matter of all these different things that you don't have control over, you know, other people's reactions to you, the way that your desires get filtered through cultural things and all that. And that's kind of the the idea. Ultimately, I feel like behind the mirror stage that it's kind of that moment where you see that who you are is very different from the image of yourself that you have to other people, to yourself, that you lie to yourself all the time and all that can go on in your head. And that's where it gets all kind of scary. Um, yeah, I, I actually think that there could be something along those lines going on. It may not go in quite the full on postmodern way, but that's, that's kind of an interesting take. I hadn't thought about that and I need more, need a little more time to, to digest that. And I know one of our followers on Twitter is a big Lacan guy, so he he should tell me if I totally got Lacan <laughs> wrong, because I find Lacan impossible to read of, of all the postmoderns. And I read a lot of them, but Lacan always kind of mystified me. I think Ubicon is kind of convincing me, though, that Wolf cannot be a postmodernist, because he's not saying that the world is a reflection. He's saying that those reflections do embody something real. They have, they require something real on the other side for them to exist. Yeah. There's some interesting ways to think about, and I feel like Peter Wright's book starts to get at this sometimes in certain places, but he doesn't really follow it through where almost the idea that Wolf uses postmodern kinds of thinking and images and weird things like that. But in order to kind of come back to some kind of essentialism or higher truth. And he may not, it's not that he simplifies things like it's, it's, it's more that he tries to take those ideas about how we're wrong about ourselves and everything is based on perspective. It doesn't mean that there isn't some truth out there. It's just that you have to deal with all those things based on sort of living in a world where we see everything through a perspective lens and through a relativist kind of lens. But for Wolf, the trick is, well, how can you still find some truth within that? Right. And I think that fits very well with all the things that he says in interviews about how 
what he's trying to do is just be a realist by saying, yeah, we always see things through our own filters. Doesn't mean that you can't then try to get beyond those filters, even if it takes an entire life or history or cycles of history to get there. It's still something that we strive towards for various reasons. That seems more like where Wolf would go in the long run, but he's not going to minimize how hard it is to do that. And so all those sort of postmodern seeming stumbling blocks to figuring out the truth or finding out who you really are or something like that or real meaning Wolf's going to confront those head on. He's not going to dismiss that. I don't think. Regarding the word circumfuse that Odillo references in the short story, the cat uh, Odillo says that people who enter the mirrors are circumfused to the borders of Bria. Ubicon says, I would take that to mean the circumference of the mirrors are fused to Bria, allowing time, space, fashion, light travel. He also has something to say about captoptromancy, that is, the practice of divining with mirrors. He offers an, an Oxford English Dictionary reference from 1759, quote, he understands all the mysteries of catoptromancy, he having a magical glass to be consulted upon some extraordinary occasions. Ubicon provided a link to a blog article by Jonathan Goodwin. I'll link to it in the show notes. Jonathan Goodwin dates catoptromancy uh, to the time of the ancient Greeks. And finally, he has some thoughts about Asia and Agilus's mask. I do have to say real quick, though, I just wanted to thank him for teaching me a new word because <laughs> that was not one I knew before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I, I keep wanting to say cat uh, trop to Mancy and says, oh, it's just like the cat. So <laughs> finally, he has some thoughts about Agia and Agilus's masks. He says, why do people assume that because Agilus is still wearing a mask, even during the fight, that Agia must be wearing one too, isn't there a more parsimonious explanation? That is, Agilus wears a mask in order to look like Agia and maintain a fiction that they are twins. What if they are in this scam together as lovers? Craig, I don't know if I've provided an update, but I think it's a problem to assume Agia wears a mask, even though she definitely is in costume as she says mm-hmm. later to uh, Hildegrand. She's in costume during the whole time that she's escorting Severian. Uh, Ubicon says, um, once they encounter Severian, they draw the attentions of Hathor, who starts working with Agia after Agilus is dead, maybe. Hathor, having searched for Severian through the mirrors or other devices, his ship, maybe, that allows him to bring the off-world creatures that he uses to attack Severian. It's just a thought. I'm sure it's mentioned in the Earth list somewhere. I'm not, 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 I don't recall that uh, in that way. I have so many thoughts about Hathor. I, I have no idea what to say about it. You have him. so many thoughts because we have gone through so much of Asia in things that people haven't heard quite yet. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but we're, we're digging up more and more. Yeah. Yeah. Ubukan, you might be right. Uh, Ubikon is also an Agia fan. He says, I think we should give Agia some credit for being resourceful and intelligent. Joan Gordon was right to call Wolf sexist, but here we have a strong, capable woman who doesn't take shit from anybody. I'm on team Agia. Well, as I said to Joan Gordon at the time, Wolf is a sexist, depending on how you define it. Everyone is, depending on how you define it. 
We'll get to Dorcas and Jolenta later. Those characters and their treatments certainly invite criticism to Wolf, the writer. But I agree that Thecla and Asia are far more complex. Regarding those mirrors, we speculated why Father Aniri's mirror room has eight walls. Why is it an octagon? I should say, Craig, that while I was listening to the draft edit on that episode, my wife was listening in and she says, what? It's because an eight on its side is infinity. And that's pretty good. Why didn't she join Facebook or get a Reddit account and stop lurking? (laughs) Or read the books. That's what she needs to do. Yeah. (laughs) Well, crazy idea. Filippo de Paola has his own theory. He says, the reason why you end up with an octagonal room is because you repurpose a square room covering the corners with mirrors. Father Aniri brought the technology and adapted some locations here and there for his own reasons. It's not the only place repurposed throughout the series. That's also pretty good. Once we get think about the antechamber, that kind of makes a lot of sense. How the antechamber is a repurposed Mm-hmm. whatever it is right <laughs> i mean the office room that becomes this crazy <laughs> thing this crazy dungeon yeah it makes sense we've seen it before right filippo also proposes that the botanical gardens are essentially the library in star trek the original series episode all are yesterdays that's the one where the crew encounters a librarian with a portal to different time frames on the planet. It's a bit of a ripoff of Harlan Ellison's episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. But I totally forgot to go rewatch it. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you how it is. Spock and McCoy get lost in one of the portals, and Marriott Hartley shows up in Raquel Welch's old costume from one million years BC. That prompted Mark Aramini to offer evidence that Wolf was not a Star Trek fan at all. And that is ironic, Craig, because Gene Wolfe and Gene Roddenberry were inducted into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame in Seattle at the same time. I have a picture of me with Roddenberry's son, Eugene Rod Roddenberry Jr. (laughs) and Will Wheaton. Wait, now who told us the story about somebody hearing that Wolfe was a science fiction writer and they were like, Gene, Gene Roddenberry? And he was kind of down after that. Who told us that story? Yeah, I think that, that that, that was Mark. Okay. That was Mark, yeah. More on the mirrors. Carl Halbjornsson has some platonic ideas about Father Aniri's mirrors. He says, about how the story Severian tells to himself is a recounting of a recounting of a recounting. Plato does the same thing in the symposium. Apollodorus telling a story he heard from Glocken, who had confirmed its validity with Socrates. The implication, of course, is that Plato himself has not heard the story within the narrative, although he is supposedly the one who records it, which further implies an even greater distance between the reader and the events described. Couple this with the fact that the Book of the New Sun is written by Severian, which means he is writing to himself to some degree of the story he told himself. And you have a pretty neat parallel situation. In each case, An event is recounted through indefinitely many layers of distance and recollection, prompting the reader to question the validity and soundness of narrative in general. Severian, qua unreliable narrator, comes to mind here. And we know, of course, what Plato argued with regard to the written word. Right. He asks, 
did Wolf have platonic tendencies that we know of? <laughs> oh man, Carl, funny. You should ask get ready. now. Are you gonna get yeah. are you gonna get an earful this episode? That's all I'll say. Uh, Mark Garamini is joining us for this chapter. And does Wolf have platonic tendencies? <laughs> now I like that too, because it matches very well with what we were just talking about with reflections of images that retellings of stories are like reflections in a certain way, but they're different each time. Mm -hmm. And that kind of gets to that mix here of, okay, well, what's the context that we're supposed to be looking here and actually thinking about Plato and Plato supposedly being the philosopher who stands in for a kind of ultimate ideal truth, but also being one of the most indirect philosophers in the way that, it was presented because Plato was always telling dramas about this other guy, Socrates, who is always conversing with other people. So you're always getting even the philosophical truth through this mediated process. And I mentioned there, there's a great book by um, actually a guy who was a professor of mine for a short time, um, John Salas, called Being in Lagos, which is about Plato, but it tries to argue that the most proper way to read Plato is to take that sort of frame narrative as central to everything that's going on and not to just try to get to the essence of the arguments of just like, okay, what is he saying a form is and, and what is he saying the soul is and things like that, that instead what he's really doing is playing with kind of like we talked about with Wolf, how difficult it is to get to those pure ideas because of all the different levels of mediation that we actually live in. And it's a much more complicated way to read Plato, but it's still Plato. And just like we've been talking about how Wolf could be playing around with all these sort of postmodern ideas of reflection and how difficult it is to get the real story and unreliable narrators. But it doesn't mean that he's saying that then there is no final, ultimately true story behind everything. Mm -hmm. It's just harder. It's just much more complicated. So, yeah. And this also reminds me of my conversation with Joan Gordon about how the Citadel library is like a hologram. So it just keeps further down. You look, the, the more you see the same thing. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, speaking of which, we have we have some comments on chapter 21 this week. Some people just could not wait. Thoughts about the story of the fish in the water. It, it was appropriate because chapters 19 through 21 are just really hard to break apart for discussion. I hoped I could convince Fabio Fernandez to just keep going from chapter 19 into chapter 20. Or... Mark Amini to start with chapter 20 and continue into chapter 21. But it turns out that those people have lives. Hmm. <laughs> but anyway, after chapter 20 and the discussion of the fish in Father Aniri's presence chamber, people had things to say about the fish in chapter 21. And Mark talks about that too. So let's do this chapter and then we'll talk about the other theories in the comments of the following chapter episode. All I'll say, and I wish I'd brought this up with Mark, a pool of water is humankind's first mirror. So water is a mirror in a world created within Aniri's mirrors and there's a fish in it and a lot of hologramming going on there. I like that. And yeah, so we're not avoiding all the talk about the fish. We're going to get to it, which is mm -hmm. probably we'll all have more to say once we actually go through the fish on our end too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Second fish. Yeah. 
In the podcast subreddit, Goon Hands made a credible argument for why the red color of the pelerines' robes could have been based on the conciliator's blood. I had said that the pelerines didn't even know the claw was a thorn, let alone that it had Severian's blood on it. But Good Hands pointed out that when our Severian hands the thorn to the villagers in Earth of the New Sun, he tells them, quote, this has been drenched in my blood. So, the fact that Wolf chose to have Severian note that fact is evidence in itself that Wolf could have intended that originally people understood that the claw was a thorn drenched in the conciliator's blood, and that's how the pelerines got the color of their gowns. But then someone encased it in translucent material for safekeeping. People forgot that the claw was a thorn and not a gemstone that encased it, and naturally they forgot about the blood as well. And this works on an idea of how symbols and meaning and understanding and religion and philosophy and other things evolves over time as symbols get surrounded with other designations and flourishes, which themselves become symbols, sometimes obscuring the original meaning over time, sometimes symbolizing something completely different. This happens most overtly in that most common type of symbol, words. So, yeah, (laughs) I like it. I like it, too, that there's the idea that the meaning of the symbol or the intention of the symbol seems like it might change over time, but it might actually stay the same. In other words, red is the color of the sun at this point in history. Mm -hmm. And even if their robes were initially red for a different reason, they're still symbolically appropriate because the conciliator is the bringer of the sun. And so, yeah, they're still maybe the sign of a dying sun or the symbol of a dying sun since it's red, but it's still connected to the sun. They're they only know there, that, a, so. that a sun looks red, so they don't know yeah. what a new sun looks like. Yeah. So it's still in a lot of ways an appropriate symbol. I think he might be right, even though, you know, I would have preferred the idea of symbolic meaning arising arbitrarily and that meaning creeping backwards through time to become the appropriate symbols. But, you know, speaking of pelerines, Gareth BK posted a quote from Citadel of the Autark that he saw as a nod to the reader that Severian was the conciliator. Remember that that wasn't made self-evident until Earth of the New Sun. In this passage, Severian is talking to the Pellerine, trying to convince her that the thorn he is offering her is the claw, and that he's trying to return it. Severian says, It is a claw, I began, to which the Pellerine responds, That was only a flaw at the heart of the jewel. The conciliator was a man, Severian the lictor, not a cat or bird. Or it could be read, The conciliator was a man, Severian the lictor, not a cat or bird. Incidentally, this passage also reflects the limits of human understanding versus the design of God, and that to the Pellerine, this sacred object, what Severian calls a thing from another universe, is merely a flaw at the heart of some other physical thing of material value. But it's not a flaw. It's the sacred design itself. Rod McDowell posted for the first time on the Facebook group, Rod McDowell. Rod, you must have heard all the Planet of the Apes and Flicka jokes already, so I'm going to just skip them. (laughs) He says, I've just fully caught up on your excellent podcast. Thank you so much for the hours of entertainment you've provided so far. You're welcome, Rod, and thanks for your help. And speaking of that help, he says, in your coverage of Chapter 7, you talk about how Thecla is potentially the 
indwelling spirit. And Severian's ingestion of her personality is potentially the reason for his success in bringing the new son, and that her name, Thecla, is effectively the Claw. That Severian admits that much of his higher learning and spiritual side comes from Thecla. So, I was somewhat surprised when, in chapter 8, you skip right over to delicious irony when Thecla says, When I am free, I shall found my own sect. I will tell everyone that its wisdom was revealed to me during my sojourn among the torturers. The teachings will be that there is no Agatha demon or afterlife. Isn't that exactly what she does? As part of Severian, she travels back in time, becomes a conciliator, and founds a religion that has no beneficent deity or promise of an afterlife. It's a materialistic cult revering advanced science, promising a renewal of the sun. Hmm. What do you think, Craig? I'm not so sure about that one. Yeah, it depends on how you read what Severian is doing. I mean, that's a very sort of Peter Wright approach to Mm -hmm. it. And as I've argued before, that's available. And I think Wolf definitely puts that in there because one of the things that he's trying to do throughout the whole series is give science fiction explanations for anything that seems like fantasy, even if we put religion in the category of fantasy, just meaning magic and things that you know are supernatural in some form or another. But you know, we're talking about everything else too, about symbols and and the power of symbols, which is not physical, which is not necessarily scientific, and that has more to do with meaning and and higher levels. And actually, I know down in the comments of that one, uh, we got in discussions about some of the parts that come later in even in Shadow, where Severian and Dorcas are talking about there being multiple meanings, and they they talk about three meanings. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of a reflection of much more medieval way of looking at how to read the Bible and other things of, of a- different allegories. I think it's Augustinian actually. Uh, yeah, there, there are all kinds of different versions, um, but allegoresis and sort of how to, how to read allegory, how to read the Bible as allegory, how to read other things that way. It, later, late medieval times, it became something of how to read, you know, even secular literature. Uh, but there's like higher meanings, there's plot level, there's anyway, there, there are four things, we don't have to get into the, the four of them. But the way that Severian and Dorcas talk about it, there's first of all, the material meaning for something like literally the physical rules of the world. Um, then there's a middle level they talk about, which is more about the reasons things were made the the purposes to which things are put and then they talk about ultimately a spiritual meaning to things um, and they said that everything that happens can be looked at under those three different reasons and none of the three are supposed to contradict each other mm-hmm. and that's a hard idea because usually especially modern people we usually think well no the material is ultimately the one that causes things and those other things can be explained in terms of the material um and of course, Wolf is trying to say, no, that's not how that works. So that actually opens up all this other way of looking at what's going on here, too. And and not just that. I mean, there's also the the idea that, well, no, he's maybe he's playing out a Christ story or maybe this is how the Christ story gets itself known in the future or something along those lines. There's all the different ways that people have read New Sun as a religious story. So, yeah, I mean, the whole idea is that the physical causes can also have religious meaning to them and even be caused by religious purposes that they happen at the same time. And I feel like the real drama of the book in the long run, for me at least, is Severian trying to decide which side of that split, if there is one, that he's going to fall on and that ultimately it's kind of for us too to decide, okay, do we think this is science fiction or fantasy or something else? So I think it's in that comment, it's almost like saying, yeah, Thecla was saying, yeah, I'm going to make up this religion that really says there's no religion. 
But then the way he says, and then that's exactly what she does. It's like, well, does she? Because yeah. then we have Severian saying everything is holy and yeah. completely different understanding of who the Yasadis are. So, yeah, it's I, I totally get what he's saying, that that mm-hmm. that if you sort of go with that right idea that, yeah, that's totally fun irony that she offers that and it comes up. I think I just don't I don't think that's the that's not where I land. Well, there's a lot of irony in her statement as well. I mean, mm-hmm. first, in Thecla's case. She's wrong about the afterlife, at least in her own case. At least for her. Yeah. yeah that's true. And secondly, a definition of an Agatha demon is, as I think we said, the good God in a dualistic religion. So yeah, essentially God. But I've also learned more since then. In, in Greco-Roman folk religion, an Agatha demon is a personal companion spirit that gave people good luck, health, wisdom. If only Severian had a personal companion <laughs> all the time. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's a bit like a guardian angel that everyone has, but it can also be thought as integral to their own soul, to the soul of every person. And that, again, is what she becomes. <laughs> also, I don't think the conciliator religion refutes the idea of the increate. We certainly hear a lot of references to him, her, even from the heroes. But it's true that Severian never mentions the Increate in his sermons, as far as I know, but does declare that he's made a conciliation to the sky people. And it's not obvious to me that his listeners differentiate the idea of the sky people from emissaries of the Increate, which is a role that Zadkiel sort of accepts. Uh, but Rod actually wants to propose more. Uh, when asked by Severian, but who will you say revealed that to you? Thecla responds, an angel of ice, perhaps, or a ghost? She admits that this is a contradiction and claims this will be the appeal. So who is the angel of ice and who is the ghost? As for the ghost, Craig, I'll keep quiet because everyone knows my go-to. Angel of ice? Sounds like a messenger of the Megatherians. Photolus, who is the reason she's here after all? Could be, or Master Ash, or Thecla could be the ghost. She herself is a ghost by that point. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know we get the Eidolons later on, but in this case, we're hearing this story from Severian, who has the ghost of Thecla inside her, and so she's in many ways telling us herself, yeah, this is where she got, this is how that idea happened. Yeah. David Wells started an interesting conversation about the theory that Severian forged Thecla's excruciation papers. It was interesting. There's a link to it in the show notes. Speaking of Thecla, how about Thea? Oliver Byrne is as captivated as I am about Redditor Der Grimm Nebulin's Hyperion Thea slash First Severian Thea connection. I'm glad you have another Thea friend. <laughs> yes, I, I need a friend. Or as Oliver puts it, Thea, the mother of the sun god. So he toyed with the idea if first Severian could have had a different mother than our Severian. He thinks probably not. And yeah, I agree. But then he comes with an interesting question. Which came first, Thecla or the Claw? He proffers that Wolf came across Thecla while studying Catholicism and worked out the Claw from that rhetorical device. My theory was that Wolf had a confluence of reasons for giving his protagonist a claw. It's possible that first he had a thorn 
And he started looking for saints whose names implied thorn. And not finding just the right one, he discovered Thecla and said, well, you know, a thorn can look like a claw. I like that a lot more the more I think about it. Alston Jakubiak chimed in on Facebook and said, first, I'd like to say I adore the podcast. You've inspired me to embark on my third reading of the Book of the New Sun, which I hope to begin once I finish listening to Chapter 20 podcast. Thank you. I hope that in 20 years, when you're doing the Wizard Night or Latro, I can listen along. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope I can say it. (laughs) That's exactly what I hope I'm doing in 20 years, assuming that I'm with y'all. Thank you so much, Austin. Craig, I'm always mildly surprised when people say that they like this thing that we do so much. I think I know my tribe, and there's no way they wouldn't like this kind of thing. But some people really like it. And it's a bit humbling since Gene Wolfe did all the heavy lifting here. <laughs> Although 20 years of work, man, they're dooming us to a lot of labor. That's a, that's a lot of time. So, this has come a long way from like when we first talked and like, we're going to talk about it anyway. Why don't we just hit record? And it's like, what were we thinking? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We didn't plan to be talking this much, I think, probably originally. <laughs> anyway, Alston is pushing back a little on my assumption that a botanic garden described as a thallus should be envisioned as a Greek thallus, sort of a beehive shape thing with arches all around. Alston's not so sure about that. He notes that a thallus could just refer to a hill or mound, and that's the meaning in geology and astronomy, which makes him think of a geodesic dome. But on reflection, he doesn't think a Greek thallus or a geodesic dome works for what's described. He offers instead that the Crystal Palace, designed in 1851 for the Great Exhibition in London by Joseph Paxton. He notes, one, the images of the Crystal Palace would be available to Wolf in any architectural history book. Two, it was a technical marvel itself in its time. It was one of the earliest buildings to make use of sheet glass and probably the most significant demonstration of it at the time. Three, it was lost to time when it was burned down in 1936, somehow fitting applied to the Botanic Gardens. Four, there were plants inside, but they weren't the focus. There were multiple exhibits, uh, raw materials, machinery, uh, manufacturers, fine arts. The exhibits ranged from the Kohenor diamond, porcelain, music organs, massive hydraulic press, fire engine. Uh, there was also a 27-foot-tall crystal fountain. Also, five, it features killer arches. And <laughs> Craig, I like it. I certainly think one of the Crystal Palaces could have been the major inspiration for the Botanic Gardens. Perhaps a slightly better fit in some ways would be the New York City Crystal Palace, built two years later in 1853. It was inspired by the one in London. It was built for the exhibition of the industry of all nations. It actually has a dome on top, and it was otherwise in the shape of a Greek cross, a plus sign, the sign of addition in the Viranese religion in the Book of the Long Sun, which is also a sun symbol. I keep getting that idea in my head about Agia talking about how they widen out the further you go, which keeps making me think circles and domes and pods. Mm -hmm. and Yeah, that's the one I can't get out of my head. And so I know the Crystal Palace, there was a big building in Dallas where I grew up that was intentionally made like it. And it's it's beautiful. It's also very rectangular. And that's the <laughs> one thing that makes me think 
maybe not, but I'm still kind of iffy on exactly how what Wolf describes is supposed to be imagined. So not sure. There I'm is sure a my dome on top. Is, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's on top. Yeah. And but I still uh, And it's got arches. And it's got arches. But beyond that, it really is hard to describe. You right. are kind of imposing your opinion on yeah. on it. Michael Grant has an interesting contribution regarding time, dreams, Severian's memories, and the Kumeyan. I don't know what to do with it yet. It does call back to something that you and I have talked about that. Severian's memory seems to work like a kind of time travel. Anyway, I put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, Michael Grant wants us to do a whole episode about Asia. I think he's right that we could do an episode about Asia and theories surrounding her. But, well, I think this book and our discussions are about half Asia from now on until we get beyond her mm-hmm. into the play and Jonas and the final chapters of the book. What you will see in the next over half a dozen chapters, maybe more, is a development in my opinions about Asia and her place in the book. Some are going to like it, some won't. I haven't figured her out to my satisfaction. Her role in the story is to play Scorpius to Severian's Orion. I got that. (laughs) But there are clues going on in four different directions or more. It's weird. Right now, I'd only be scratching my head. But if someone has a big theory about Aja that ties it all together, her witchiness and broad knowledge of the North and complicated feelings about Severian and her relationship to Hathor and maybe what is his deal, well, I definitely want to hear it. I'm, I'm not guaranteeing it, but if you've got a theory that resolves problems for me or Craig, maybe we will do an episode on it and Aja as a whole. We were kind of surprised by how much Asia thinking and wondering and questioning we've ended up doing. So mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah, I'd love to get Asia off my back. She, Hathor, that guy hiding in House Azure, they're surely the biggest enigmas in the book for me at this point, mm-hmm. which actually demonstrates how much has been resolved for me since we began this thing, Craig. So thanks to everyone out there who's helped us out, even if only, quote, only by challenging us and by asking questions. On both Reddit and Facebook, I, and you a little bit less, got into a long discussion about First Severian Theory, FST, we'll call it. It got quite involved. So I want a place where I can talk about these things, Craig, but I'm very aware that probably most people, including people who love the Book of the New Sun best, but are not convinced or even pleased by the FST, and certainly not everyone agrees with how it works. So I want a place where you and I and whoever could talk about the theory without dragging down the rest of the discussion, even in the comments section. So I had this idea to put them in a separate bonus episodes as they come out. Now, this doesn't mean I'm not going to discuss the FST in regular episodes. Personally, sometimes it's a good way. And sometimes for me, the only way that I can rectify issues of plot and narrative in the chapters. But if we're going to talk about the theory separate from a chapter or specific things that we're, we're actually reading, as we did on Reddit, relative to the other solar cycle books, then I don't want it to disrupt the discussion or wear on the listener's patience. I want everyone to get what they came for without additional nonsense. You'll still get the nonsense that we're <laughs> known for, but the additional nonsense will be quarantined off where it won't infect the rest of the episodes. So we're employing <laughs> some 
social distancing. <laughs> First Severian must stay at least <laughs> two weeks away from other. Yeah. First Severian is in that other room. <laughs> First Severian has temporal distancing as well as spatial distancing. That's right. Yeah. Hey, we got an Apple podcast review. That's oh, sweet. awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. We. Oh, wait, this one. <laughs> yeah, we don't even have to figure out who this one was. Charles Gillingham's posted under his own name. Like a stuntman offering to do a fire stunt for a movie without an asbestos suit. It's, uh, this will not end well. But Charles says, Certain misties aver that the universe was constructed by these two know-it-alls. In a time of ancient gods, warlords, and kings, these jerks completely spoil a book I wanted to read. Here's the story. I was hanging out in my friend Larry's basement, and I was getting bored because all Larry likes to do all day is reorganize the furniture. So in between all the chairs being placed and replaced in the same spots, I thought, boy, howdy, I would like to get me something fun to read. So I went out to my local library, and sure as you're sitting there reading this, I did see a shiny new copy of Shadow of the Torturer on the closest shelf to the kids section, but wasn't. And I went over there and grabbed it. I was barely out the door when a large group of sweat-obese children were squatting around an iPod listening to something. As I sped past, for they smelt awful, and I wanted to get back to Larry and his couches, I heard something like, and that relates to later on when Severian eats Thecla's brain and becomes her. I thought nothing of it at the time. It was only later, after having read the first sentence, did I know what happened. I was spoiled. Never again could I feel the sweet joy of Wolf's fiction spill over me. One time I was eating this soup, what I did was take cream of mushroom and mix in some tang. Anyhow, I spilled that all <laughs> over me and my shirt smelled like oranges for years. Now, what does any of this have to do with a podcast that overanalyzes Gene Wolfe novels? Yes, no, no, yes, yes, no, yes, yes, maybe. <laughs> okay, that last bit was a Forlazen reference in case you yeah. didn't catch it. That's exactly how Forlazen ends. But, um, oh, I didn't check it. I didn't check if it was the actual things, but knowing Charles, he probably got the order of yes and no is exactly right. But right. Um, yeah, I once he mentioned the basement, I just kept thinking of Neil Young and after the gold rush and <laughs> sitting in a burnout basement reading Gene Wolfe. But uh, thanks, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's awesome. <laughs> and that's our longest review so far. He it, is holding yeah. the record. Yeah. Uh, though it's not a competition. It's not a you don't have to, you don't <laughs> no, have that to was write awesome. war and peace. But that was really that was great. Awesome. Thank you, Charles. I'd yeah. actually I love the idea of an of a show where every review is just a story. Like they're not actual reviews, they're just everyone is just its own little vignette and story. Yeah. So right. that's just kind of cool. And now, Craig. We're going to continue following Severian and Asia through the jungle garden. And lucky us, we've got a guide. Yes. We have nothing to fear from the Pelicosaurs because Mark Aramini is going with us into that jungle hut. I know y'all are going to really like this because I definitely did. We have with us tonight Mark Aramini, who many of you know from reading, from the Earth List, from 
writings that are out there and published. And I, I guess we can call you a Hugo nominated author, which is pretty cool. You can. Yes. Technically. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I mean, you can call me a Hugo nominated author, but in his case, it's actually true. <laughs> the truth. <laughs> and time does have a way of turning our lies into truth regardless. So, well, let's hope. Yeah. <laughs> just by, if I was in a wolf novel, just by saying that, I would, would be become. guaranteed to exactly. be a Wolf-nominated author. This podcast nominated next year, as if by magic. <laughs> yeah. Mine will. A little too niche, I think. Yeah. It's all right. We can still dream big. Yeah. So, yeah, if anyone is familiar with my name, it is because of my writings, my videos on Wolf, um, Between Light and Shadow. Those volumes after that are still someday going to come out. You know, I've turned in everything except an essay on Land Across, which I have sat on for a very long time because that novel, it just, uh, you know, I, I try to find some, some form of objective closure and that novel continually eludes me, you know, in, in order for me to say, hey, I'm going to pin this down. And then I'm like, I'm just going to put it aside for a little bit. So hopefully someday I'll be done with everything. But yeah, um, I don't have a publication date for that, but my editor should be working on all of them consecutively because it's, it's now totaling 1.2 million words, which is about longer than Proust's remembrance of things past. <laughs> uh, so it's gotten, it's gotten pretty out of hand there. Yeah. So how many volumes are they thinking? Because the first volume is out. 800 pages. Yeah. So about four volumes of the same size. So it's going to be like, you know, 3000 pages total. Yeah. Wow. It's a lot of writing about Wolf. Well, he deserves it. He does. He does. And more. Exactly. Right. Hopefully that, you know, some of what I've done is useful for people. And that's actually something I wanted to talk about tonight because I've written exhaustively on Gene Wolf, but I've written very little on Book of the New Sun. And there's a reason for that. Um, it was the first thing I encountered. I read Book of the New Sun when I was in the fourth, fifth grade. Um, and, you know, instantly I, I, I fell in love with the book, even though obviously meaning continually uh, kind of uh, evades anyone who reads it the first time. But, you know, what really struck me about it is that I think it really is a transcendent aesthetic object. Um, you know, when I read criticism on it, or no offense, or when I listen to podcasts, I always think, okay, let's just let's just go read the book again because it's such a beautiful object, and and I feel like um, it has that sublime ability to transcend what anybody can say about it. And I don't know, and I mean, I love Gene Wolfe, and I think he's the most amazing author probably that ever lived. But I don't know that his later work has that same transcendent, numinous quality to where even if you don't understand a damn thing that's going on, it's still just a fabulous book. Um, and and from an emotional appeal, right? Because you know. When I, when I wrote on Wizard Knight or even Book of the Short Sun or Evil Guest, I always felt like my work was adding something to the emotional understanding of the piece. And I don't know that there's anything that I could actually meaningfully add to New Sun. I feel like it's just a perfect aesthetic object and that what we can't know sometimes even makes it more attractive. So that's kind of why I haven't written very much. And I also feel like it's always going to be read. You know, if any one thing of Wolf is always read besides Peace and the Fifth Head of Cerberus, Book of the New Sun is 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 kind of what his immortality hinges upon. And so I feel mm -hmm. like it doesn't it doesn't really need me, you know? Um not that the other books need me, I guess, but they need me a little more, I think. So do you have any idea what if you were just going to speculate? Like what about New Sun makes that happen? 
Is it the characters? Is it the world? Is it was Wolf just channeling something? I think at that yeah, point in the eighties, everything, <laughs> everything, the prose, uh, the beauty of it, just just every design decision that he made, I think, made it a book that is greater than the sum of its parts. Because when you try to put your finger on it, it's it's just. It's just one of those sublime books, just like, um, you know, the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy is worlds better than anything else Lawrence Stern wrote. It's just, he just hit on it, you know? And I think every once in a while, you just knock one out of the park that way, um, no matter what your talents are. And I think Wolf's talents are immense. And he wrote many great novellas. But, um, you know, whenever I think about writing on New Sun exhaustively, I, I think what's what's the final point there, right? What can I really add that that book doesn't already do in such beautiful fashion and and sometimes that mystery is part of the appeal yeah i just think it's a perfect aesthetic object awesome that i don't know that i have anything else to add to that but i was just gonna gonna say like what just try to figure out because i wondered about that too like um why new sun and and i guess james you kind of have a different opinion in it's, some ways it's I think, but, not my favorite novel I, which yeah. is not to say i don't like it or appreciate it i do I like it a lot. Um, but I think you've said that you found Long and Short Sun much more effective. It's probably my fifth favorite Gene Wolfe novel, which fifth, really fifth says eight. how much I like his his novels. But if I was going to say, okay, well, I got to go to uh, a desert island. I can only bring three Gene Wolfe novels. It probably would not be the one I brought with me. You know, part of it might be when I first encountered it. Um, you know, I was in the fourth or the fifth grade. And when I was reading this, you know, there's something about me that has always gravitated towards symbols and a concrete belief in them. And, um, you know, it really seemed as if I was reading something that was not necessarily regurgitating something that I took to be an innate truth, um, but was really speaking to me in a way that no other thought processes, no other fiction, nothing that I'd ever read really had before. So there's that early glow to maybe that's just a unique thing, like your first encounter of a certain way of thinking for, for me, where I see it with kind of those, those, uh, what do they call that? Rosy, rosy spectacles mm -hmm. of the past or whatever it may be, but I still think it's sublime. Well, I, yeah, I do too. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, obviously I sit down here and I, I say, well, you know, it's really, you know, my fourth or fifth favorite Gene Wolfe novel. And then I sit down here and I, I talk about it. And next thing you know, it's, it's been an hour and a half. So exactly. Yeah. I think you're waiting for the day that we can do long sun yeah. <laughs> we can, or the year, I guess not the day, but the year. Right. Down the line. <laughs> I'll be but. 70 years old. <laughs> Another thing that I wanted to talk about today before we really get into this chapter is uh, I've heard James say several times that this is a Gnostic world. And so there, there is really something I wanted to say about that. I feel like um, Severian at the start, you know, when he says like certain mysteries of air that the real world is just a construct of the human mind. And then when he's down there with Altan, he's like really obsessed with were we dead or were we just echoes in somebody's memory? Um, while the book is playing with Gnostic ideas, I feel that by the end, there's a progression, a very clear progression toward Neoplatonism and specifically um, an Augustinian kind of view of the universe, especially in that sublime scene on the beach there where, you know, he, he sees the, the claw and he takes his boots off and he says, you know, everything is descended from the Pantocrator because everything has touched his hand. In a way, right, I, I don't see this as an ex excessively Gnostic world, but one in which everything 
that ever was is almost eminent. It emanates from that one source that precedes everything. And so one of the things that people constantly talk about, that opening talk of, you know, how symbols create us, I see them always doing that in a sociological sense. I think it's far more transcendent and sublime than that. When he says that symbols create us and we don't need to know anything about it for it to do that, that's from before human existence. There's something out there that's almost like the platonic ideal, but it's not just um, the material reflection of it. It actually emanates from this source. And we see that given real expression um, at the end of Citadel of the Autarch. And even in the way that these aquasters and eidolons kind of emanate from some source and they recreate material, but it's almost as if they're like human-sized pinpricks that an infinite soul can come to inhabit. So for example, there's the analogy at the end of Earth of the New Sun that if you write the same words on the wall um, in the same exact pattern, are there two writings or does it just become one? And so um, when Severian's body is kind of resurrected a couple times over the course of, uh, of the novel, um, you get the sense that the same spirit inhabits it. It's almost as if like that spirit is back there and it's limitless and infinite. And this is not purely Christian theology. This is not like resurrection of one body and one soul in perfection. This is like an infinite soul that then approaches the right material vessel for it. And then every time that vessel is present, it can kind of manifest itself in it, which I think is a very interesting way to view reality. And I think it's more Neoplatonic than even, you know, purely like dogmatically Catholic Christian. And that I don't think the material world is evil or fallen. It's just that our perceptions twist it that way. So that's one caveat I want to say. Every time you say Gnostic, I kind of be like, but is the world really, <laughs> but is the world really evil? You know, sure, there's the spiritual, but but is it really fallen and evil? And is the creator an evil God? Um, so that's something I wanted to bring up as well. And that might be something we could talk about too James like like we've we've said that every now and then but I don't know that we've ever really hashed out what we mean by gnosticism nothing would make me happier than to suddenly discover that this novel has progressed to an augustinian idea you know platonism is you can be splitting hairs dividing it from gnosticism and right right i mean well, i i've i've said i don't know if i've said it while we were recording but i've told craig that i think that this novel is the Narnia of Gnosticism. And Wolf doesn't exactly walk away from that when he gets to Long Sun either. I mean, that is, if anything, even more. Gnostic. No, I think Long Sun is more explicitly Gnostic. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think Long Sun is the Gnostic one, and this is the Neoplatonic one where, um, but, but still, right, all of those Gnostic enlightenments are turned to a reality that's still the physical universe once you escape the world. So I see the world, obviously. And, and in that, the demiurge actually is evil. And that's kind of what I define Gnosticism as, is where the demiurge, the creator, is more evil or at least lacks the qualities of ultimate goodness that the one source in Neoplatonism would have. And in Neoplatonism, the, the world is not evil because it extends, it's holy. It extends and emanates from that one source. And I think that's more where Severian goes at the end. Yeah. Well, I think it's taking it too far to say that in Gnosticism that the creator is evil. He is evil compared to the true creator, to the ultimate creator. But he's, you know, the trouble is, is that he's further on down a, a series of eons until you get to this world. Eons being individual creations that are successively created over and over and over uh, so that eventually you get each one worse than the one before. 
Right. Whereas in this case, we're, we're trying to get a cyclic universe where each case is better. Maybe if we buy into the scheme of the heroes, Um, maybe. Yeah. So there's one more thing I wanted to talk about that's explicitly Augustinian. And then if you want, we can get into the chapter. And that is that I really feel like what this book is, like if you had to ask me, what does Book of the New Sun do morally? What's the big picture? Is that I do feel just like Milton said, I want to justify the ways of God to man in Paradise Lost and show how the fall of Adam is actually going to result in better things to come in the long run. That this too is theodicy, where you have something that's evil over and over in the text that then serves a greater purpose that is not necessarily intended, such that there's still free will to choose evil. But as Severian says in Earth of the New Sun, we can't know uh, the outcome of our actions, whether they're good or ill, until the end of time is reached. Only We can only judge intention. And so you have characters like Aegea. Without Aegea and her little plan, he never runs into the claw of the conciliator. Um, he never gets that, right? Without mm-hmm. Aegea and sparing her, he never gets saved at the end when he's about to die. Um, Hevor's beasts come and save him multiple times when he's about to fall victim to some other trap. Um, the Alzebo, right? When... Um, when the Alzebo is, is, is there, it, it falls in love with the family and tries to save them from, from the tribe that's the primitive tribe that's trying to kill them. Even Vodalus, right? When he imitates Vodalus, it puts him on a path toward the truth. And so I think the larger plot impetus of Book of the New Sun is to show how in almost every case, those things which we might call less than perfectly good kind of arrive at something that is much better. And that includes the role of the torturer who will obey um, and who will eventually come to constitute all that remains of humanity that's lost. So I do think that Wolf is extremely invested in theodicy and that every major plot point of this up to and including the trial, because what's the trial? It's where the Eidolons of everybody that's been his enemy um, is actually like fighting for him such that the bad fights for the good in the long run because it's just Mm. to do so. And I think that's that's pretty profound. And I think that that's how the book is actually structured. Okay. It also does go back to Neoplatonism, where yes. everything is really... For the good. For the good. And it's all an expression of that. And it's there's nothing truly evil. There's just lesser know, good. lack mm-hmm. of lesser good. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, we asked you here to come to help us with one of the more difficult chapters. Yeah. And so we're having you on as our expert. Okay. <laughs> so no pressure. Nope, no, no pressure. pressure at all. Okay. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so we're into the section here now where... Uh, Severian is in the uh, Botanic Gardens, and of course, a lot of strange things start to happen. And we already go very slow through everything. We may go even slower okay. <laughs> through, through some good. of this, just to really be sure, but both for ourselves, because I mean, I, I, of course, we read it many times, but you know, if someone's listening for after having read it just once, then this is definitely a spot where you want to slow down. You ask questions where when you're reading it for the first time, this is where if you haven't stopped yet, this is where I think a lot of people would stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and be sure. like, I don't know what's going yes. on. So are we ready to get into it? Let's go for it. Okay, chapter 21, The Hut in the Jungle. All right, so... Just to recap, it's still exactly two weeks since the Feast of Holy Catherine. Severian left the tower yesterday. He slept with a giant. At breakfast with Baldanders and Talos, Talos recruited a skinny waitress to his theater troupe. Severian is supposed to meet them at sundown to take part in their play, but no way. He's no theater nerd. So he went looking for a cheap mantle to cover his torturer's guild because the locage told him to do that the night before, really earlier that morning. 
He sees Asia outside of a rag shop and he's turned on. She sends him into the shop to find a mantle and her brother is wearing a mask and seems to be uh, wearing another one underneath. Ostensibly, they both think he's an armager in costume, but without conferring with his sister, Agilus knows that they both plan to entice Severian into a duel, kill him, take his sword. Next thing you know, here comes Agia, disguised as a cavalry officer, challenges him to a duel to the death and leaves. Then Agia shows up again out of disguise and offers to take him to go get the flower, the Avern, that he'll need to fight this duel with and to teach him how to use it. But Ajia hires a cab and then immediately challenges a stranger to a drag race. Their cab driver plows into the Cathedral of the Pelerines, destroys the altar. The Pelerines' sacred relic, the Claw of the Conciliator, goes missing because Ajia has dropped it into Severian's Sabertash. Now they finally got to the Botanical Gardens and Severian wants to look around. They enter the Jungle Garden where traveling through time, I say, as well as through space, they come to a hut on stilts. Even though the people aren't supposed to be able to see the guests in the jungle garden, when Severian takes off his mantle and he and Asia approach the hut, the guy in Tandungari has a horrified look on his face and turns away. And now we're just after noon on the same day that we've been on for six chapters since Severian woke up in Baldander's bed. All right, great. I'm going to back up just a little bit, right? When they when they originally um, go into the uh, the sand garden there in the Botanic Gardens, because there's a moment, right, where time really is treated differently. And Severian gets distracted by this cruel-looking plant with thorns that really will become the Claw of the Conciliator someday. And he notices that, he thinks, right, when is trying to pull him away, that time has been distorted. And he says, I feel like I was going to meet someone, a woman, who was waiting there. And there are so many resonances that are going to happen in this chapter in the hut in the jungle and in the next chapter, Dorcas, and then in the previous chapter, Father in Iyer's Mirrors, chapter 20. Um, so I want to talk real quickly about something that happens in Father in Iyer's Mirrors because he kind of um, tells a story that Thecla told. And uh, in it, he, um, he says, maybe it'll help us out here you know, in, in the botanical garden so we can understand what, what we're dealing with. And of course, every time Wolf says that, even though they don't seem to be related, obviously it will help us out here. So this is where Father Inayer kind of becomes uh, interested in a little girl named Domnina. And he says, hey, here's my mirrors. If you look into them, sometimes there's a little imp you might catch a glimpse of in the eye. And she's like, no, there was something else. And so she sees um, something that Father Inard identifies as a fish. And he also says that when light is reflected like this um, from, a, from a different place or whatever, sometimes a being has to come into existence uh, to kind of justify the image that you see. So we have a woman, a young girl and a fish. And then we had, when he was in the, uh, in the, you know, the sand garden or whatever, where he was seeing that thorn bush, um, mm -hmm. you had a woman that he was waiting to see. Well, obviously this is probably on the plot level Dorcas because he's about to run into her. Um, she's about to be resurrected or whatever it is there. But at the very end of Citadel of the Autark, there's going to be a callback to this because he's going to have that wonderful transcendent moment on the beach where he takes off his shoes so he doesn't walk shot on holy ground. And then immediately, who's he going to meet? He's going to go meet Dorcas, but he's going to have an understanding of who she is. Suddenly he's going to understand, wait a minute, I'm related to this woman and I need to act to preserve her. So that kind of joins those two 
sections where he runs into the the bush and then he meets Dorcas. And then later on, he's going to run into the bush again and it's going to become enmeshed with his blood. Uh, the thorn, he's going to, you know, get stabbed by it and his blood will saturate what will become the claw. And then he'll meet Dorcas again right after that. And so like there's, there's a pattern, there's a callback, but also this, the hut in the jungle, little story that we're about to hear is also going to reflect that. So here they are in the hut in the jungle is, are they in the past? Are they in the future and people who just wandered in here and got lost? This is the big mystery of it. So before I answer that, um, I'm going to let you go ahead and go just a little bit further in this, James. So go ahead and continue. Yeah. All right. So Severian starts climbing the ladder to get to the hut's veranda. It's also made of wood, just like the hut. The wood is lashed together with fiber strands of leafy material. You've seen huts. You've watched Gilligan's Island. Yes. Agia says, you're not going up that. And Sverian says that this is the sort of thing you came to see if you enter the jungle garden. Are you going to go to Disney World, not ride Space Mountain? <laughs> and at, taking advantage of a chance to dig at her, he says, and since you're not wearing anything under that dress, I figured you'd prefer I went first. Agia actually blushes at that, which surprises Sverian. Uh, I recall that in the Book of the Long Sun, Silk actually does climb a ladder behind a naked woman. Yes, so, but he looks up, yeah, into her loins in that particular. Yeah, yeah he well, he, yeah, he doesn't. He for, does. for thematic reason, I would argue, but that's neither here nor there. I agree, I agree. Okay. <laughs> Agia says, it's just a period-style house. It'll be boring. And Severian says, when I'm bored, we'll come down and be on our way. When he climbs the ladder, it sags and creaks, but Severian figures, you know, this is an amusement park. They wouldn't build a ride that's dangerous. Here's a few things. First place, Severian misunderstands the nature of this amusement park. Yes. Two, he's never met Father Aniri if he thinks that he wouldn't build an amusement park that's dangerous. <laughs> Three, he's never been to some of the carnivals I have. He also finally has far too much confidence in the attention and efficiency of the Commonwealth government that that part is really kind of inexcusable for him. He compares the hut to the tower cells at this point. They're about the same size, but this fragility and impermanence throws him off. The cells are all metal and even the slightest sound echoes. Nothing gives underfoot. Severian grew up in a house of iron or at least, it, you know, it felt that way. The oubliette is solid and massive. It's easy to think of the floors going down to the tunnels and imagine cells put together after the fact, but whatever the purpose of the cells were originally or how they were put together at that time, Severian implies that they are sort of part of the tunnels below, which is ancient future tech. Severian thinks this hut and the cells of the oubliette are like the good and evil twins of each other. Uh, I'll read it. If it is true that each of us has an anti-polaric brother somewhere, a bright twin if we are dark, a dark twin if we are bright, then that hut was surely a changeling to one of our cells. There were windows on all sides, save the one through which we entered, by the open door, and they had neither bars nor panes nor any other sort of closing. Floors and walls and window frames 
were of the branches of the yellow tree, branches not plain to boards, but left in the round. That is, the beams were unfinished, so that I could in places see sunlight through the walls. And if I had dropped a worn orichalk, it would very likely have come to rest on the ground below. So this sounds like Wolf waving a flag at something, but I'm not sure what it is. Well, it is made of trees and wood and stuff. So um, I noticed something else, that when they came into the garden here, uh, a tree was strangled by a liana vine. And so, you know, I'm not going to go into lianas right now, but there's a lot of stuff in this garden that really does bring attention to the vegetation in such a way uh, that I think is ultimately important for Wolf's entire plan here. And so um, when we see, right, this natural environment Um, we have to ask ourselves as it's coming up later, Aegea will argue that they've wandered um, into a place that is contemporary with them and that these particular people who they see are just like confused. They got confused and trapped in the illusion like Severian Mm -hmm. was. But um, I I just want to ask you guys, and then I'll give my opinion. What do you guys think of that? Is that plausible or is this the past? I think it is implausible. Yes, I agree with you. Because the stories that Isagoma tells are bringing up animals and events that are from all over the world, from all over the time frame. I don't think that they are in the past. People have have said that, gosh, this Robert and Marie Ah, sure do symbol uh, resemble Robert and Mary Moffat. Right from first the place, early that's 19th the ro- century. Ro- wrong, wrong time frame because there's yes, there's, there's a, a plane, plane coming. So, yes, and, and so I am. I'm going to disagree with you in a minute, but I'll let you finish. Okay, so I think that this implies that they are everywhere. That these are, people are very likely just captured. That they are not actual people. That they and there might not to say that they are not moving in time, but I think that the explanation that Asia often gives. And a lot of people reject that they are inside the river, the mirrors, or they that the mirrors are right. The mirrors do it. They give you. A- I think they're moving through time as well as space within the mirrors, probably more through time than space. And but they are still in the botanic gardens, and it's it's just the nature. But there's some there's there is some past mixed in there because you do see a plane. He doesn't see that's actually in there. So there is some degree of of timey-wiminess, but I don't believe that they are in an actual place in an actual time. Okay, so I'm going to argue. Now, remember, the people can't really see them fully. They're kind of obscured. They're almost as if like they're a reflected image. And so there's a scene um, where he's, I'm going to talk about what Isengoma, he tells a story about a guy hunting. Well, do you want to wait there? Do you want to wait till we get there? Um, Okay, yeah, but let me just say, I think that what has happened is actually what the previous chapter said. They are between the glasses there, and it has created the image of them in the past, which is actually in Africa um, of the Zulu religion. And there's another thematic reason um, that that the Zulu religion is important. And one of it is that their um, main god, Ankulinkulu, um, this greatest of their great good gods, 
There was no evidence that this God existed before the Christian missionaries came and then created him almost as a reflection of the Christian God, such mm. that they're, like it's almost like he had to come into existence when they encountered the idea of one supreme being. And so I feel like thematically it's very important that this be Africa of the past and that that reflection, um, the glass there, as well as the trees and the plants, because what does the Avern bend? It bends space. And a lot of what Gene wrote outside of Book of the New Sun deals with the bending of space as, um, you know, there's another dimension beyond spatial dimensions. And the next spatial dimension is time. Um, and so like the trees have that, or the, the vegetation has that property. The mirrors have that particular property to alter space. Um, the claw, right? It, supposedly the claw, but really it's the energy from Yassad coming down there. All those things, right, um, are about the negation of time. And so I feel like Father Anayar's mirrors the previous story about Domnina. And really, if we, we listen to her name, Domnina, okay, Dominus, right, Lord, I feel like so many, so much of this is about the reflection not only of godhood, um, but the reflection of a very particular thing symbolized by that fish, because the fish is going to come up again. Um, and by the end of Earth of the New Sun, Severian is going to become Oenis, right? Like the, that fish god almost, the, the sleeper fish god. Um, so there's a lot of things that are resonating and they mean multiple things at the same time. But yeah, I honestly believe that their reflection is being cast into the past where they're somewhat real there and that the previous chapter explains that metaphorically that the the fish and the girl they have to kind of have an existence out there somewhere and we're going to actually see the fish and the girl in Isengoma's story that the two mysteries explain each other just thinking about what i feel like is always the clearest time travel part of the book is way back or way forward in Citadel with Master Ash. And there we get specifically how you time travel has to do with following certain paths. Mm -hmm. And that's what they do. Here. They follow certain paths. And then also how Master Ash talks about um, that when he leaves his place and walks down that path, that whether or not he'll be there depends entirely on his probability. And so he doesn't just vanish in a puff of air you know, he's still kind of there as an image for a while, as a feeling for a while, which is very similar to how... Uh, These people talk about Aegean and Severian. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so if we're looking at something that seems like a clearer position of time travel and what would happen in those situations, I feel like if we're looking forward to that, then that sort of... Yeah, right. It, it reflects so really well. I'm arguing that they are in the botanical garden still, but that the reflection is creating this vortex that joins the two places such that an image of them there is capable of being seen by, by, you know, the missionaries. And then the missionaries can see an image of them kind of reflected there. So it's almost like it's a conduit of reflection as it were. And those, those reflections are interacting with hmm. each other. Is that some of my understanding of the way the, the mirrors work actually? Right. Because, when Aniri describes it, he he says, you know, this this fish is not in the mirror, right? It's it, what we're seeing. Well, is... the fish is actually in the pond in this chapter. Oh, okay. Well, but what about before? Oh, let's let's we'll address that. What what about okay. the antipolaric brother? This whole thing of the antipolaric brother. He make this is kind uh, of what I see happens Christ. throughout this novel. He has this idea the genuine of, uh, christ which is kind of invoked in this missionary mission here the genuine christ mm, okay yeah well i don't have a better explanation so <laughs> i'll just have right. to move on <laughs> i'm not sure i'm satisfied with that but i'll we'll move on so in this hut 
there's no proper ceiling. You look up and see the peaked roof above, as we all know, we, we've all, you know, we can at least imagine a hut. There's cookware and food bags hanging from the roof. In the corner, there is a woman reading aloud. Uh, I guess she's standing. Her name is Marie. There's a naked man. His name is uh, Isengoma. Isengoma, which means witch doctor. Yes. Uh, he's crouched at her feet. The man Severian saw on the veranda is standing, looking out the window on the opposite side of the hut from the door. His name is Robert. And Severian feels like Robert knows that they are there. There was that moment when uh, Robert saw them. And even if he didn't see him clearly, you know, Severian realizes, you know, how could he not feel the hut shake when they came in? Severian figures he's pretending that he doesn't know they're there because he prefers to. He says, there's something in the line of the back when a man turns so as to not to see. And it was evident in his. And Mary is reading from Deuteronomy 34.1, the scene where God shows Moses the land of Canaan from Mount Nebo before he dies, and then God buries him. Severian is quoting what she reads, but remember, this is a translated version in a local language, and Severian is relating what he understood to hear translated by Gene Wolfe from his futuristic language. Exactly. All right. And that's why, yeah, that's why it can't be precise, right? right? Then he went up from the plain to Mount Nebo, the headland that faces the city. And the compassionating showed him the whole country, all the land as far as the Western Sea. Then he said to him, this is the land I swore to your fathers I should give their sons. You have seen it, but you shall not set your feet upon it. So there he died and was buried in the ravine. So yes, what I wanted to mention is exactly, because some people have said, oh, this can't be the real scripture because it doesn't mention Pisgah or Gilead or Jericho. Mm -hmm. But it literally translates some of those things. Like Pisgah, for example, means the headland. So that could, I mean, it means like the cliff. So that could easily, uh, the summit of the cliff could easily be a headland facing Mm -hmm. a city. Jericho could easily be that city. He replaces, you know, the Lord with the compassionating. So yeah, we just get this sense of translations of translations. And so Mm -hmm. obviously it's not precise. We still get Mount Nebo though. We can identify Moses who is denied this for, you know, um, probably the most frequent reason is because he hit that, that rock twice, Mm -hmm. um, not really, you know, showing full faith, but then it's like, was he buried on the mountain or was he buried in the ravine or was he, where exactly was he buried? It's almost as if there's, there's two different places he could be buried here. And I think that's why Wolf, chose this because scripturally they say that this came from you know somewhat different sources where do they know where he's buried do they not know where he's buried there's like two different versions of uh, moses's death here outside the promised land and where he's buried and so i think he likes that indeterminacy and that that kind of applies as well you know is, is he in both places is he in neither that applies to the setting here in the jungle hut are they in both places are they in neither where exactly are they um, but yeah, they're preaching what I think is explicitly a Christian faith to Isengoma here. But mm-hmm. he already is invested in that belief. Like when he talks about the proud one, if if it is the Zulu belief, which, you know, that, that spear that he talks about um, later, even though some of the animals are from all over the world, um, I feel like this makes more sense because those are translations too. Right. This makes more sense as Africa and uh, especially explicitly that Zulu belief system, which is so mirroring the Christians who've come to kind of proselytize and convert them for the greater good. 
So why this passage in particular, I guess, is one thing I want to say. Like what, what the is promised it land, about right? the okay, promised so land and then specifically to, to sort of emphasize, you know, you will see it, but you won't get there. Right. Well, that's kind of going to be the fate of so many of those uh, before the bringing of the new sun, right? Before the coming of the new sun, that you're going to you're going to see this new sun coming, but you're not going to get to live in the paradise because it's not for humanity. It's not for Moses. It's not for the old chosen people. It's for a new race, right? Not for the winter killed stocks of humanity um, from eschatology and Genesis, right? It's for what will come afterwards, which is not really human at all. In fact, when Wolf when Wolf brings them up, they don't even look or seem very human. Um, so it's for something else right but but then everybody believes that the new sun is coming this is like the constant belief there and so they think yeah it's for humanity but it's not for humanity in the way that it's supposed to be it's like you get you get to the threshold you get to the door of redemption and then you find out oh i'm not welcome here it's not for me anymore it's for something new it's for something that has changed completely so that's why i think it's it's brought up what do you think well wait a minute the the in Earth of the New Sun, when Severian is 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 floating along with all the people, are do you, do you contend that those are human or not human or? So it's going to be the next stage in humanity's evolution, which is the vanished people, the neighbors, not humanity, and not humanity as it was, humanity in an unrecognizable form. It's going to be something new that has never been seen, and this is explicit in eschatology yeah. and Genesis. Well, ultimately, yes, but not immediately, right? I mean, there are there is humanity for a while. Oh, almost immediately. Hybridization, hybridization is immediate. Hybridization is one generation. Boom, you're, you you've got a new thing in one generation. As soon as the trees or whatever can infiltrate the blood, uh, you've got you've got something new. So my argument is, yeah, immediately. All right. Well, there's the green man. Yes. I mean, the green man is still human enough. And actually, for... when we get to the little uh, poem or, or kind of doggerel verse that Isengoma speaks, uh, we're going to actually look at it closely. And you're going to tell me uh, what all that has in common, because I think we'll find um, it's a uh, vegetative. So, yeah. Hmm. OK, naked man at her feet. He says it is even so he's referring to the to the verse she's just read. It is even so even with our own master's preceptress, uh, he refers to Maria's preceptress, with the smallest finger it is given, but the thumb is hooked into it. And a man has only to take the gift and dig in the floor of his house and cover all with a mat. Then the thumb begins to pull and bit by bit, the gift rises from the earth and ascends to the sky and is seen no more. I guess what he's saying is uh, what God gives, he also takes away. Right. Yes. Right. And, and yeah. And, and Marie thinks that's not the point of this. Right. <laughs> yeah. But but then but then I would I would like to, if it's OK with you, read what his response is, where he tells the story, because I'm, I'm going to talk about this at some length. Yeah. 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 Sure. OK. So he says, you know, if that's how it is, because a nephew of mine, a member of my own fire circle, had no fish. So he took up his gaudily, which is like an African fishing um, spear. Uh, it's an Australian, right? Australian fishing spear. Uh, I thought it was African. Australian. You're right. His gaudily, a Australian indigenous fishing spear. This is the first of the, of the mix-ups of space and time that we're going to have in this story. Right. And went to a certain pool. So quietly did he lean over the water, he might have been a tree. 
I think that's important too, right? The naked man leaped up as he said this, imposed his sinewy frame as though to spear the woman's feet with a shaft of air. Long, long he stood until the monkeys no longer feared him and returned to drop sticks in the water and the Hesperorn fluttered to her nest. And the Hesperorn is, I think, from South America or something. It's not from there. It's from the Lake Cretaceous. It's actually from about 70 million years right, ago. Right, right, it's right. It's an aquatic yeah. flightless bird. Flightless bird. Remember that. Okay. Um, and so it's it's kind of like a, a Cretaceous penguin. But note, okay. he says it fluttered to its nest. Yes, yes. So not unlikely. a flightless bird. A big <laughs> fish came out of his den in the sunken trunks. My nephew watched him circle slowly, slowly. He swam near the surface. And then when my nephew was about to drive home the three-toothed spear, there was no longer a fish to be seen, but a lovely woman. At first, my nephew thought the fish was the fish king, who had changed his form that he might not be speared. Then he saw the fish moving beneath the woman's face and knew that he saw a reflection. He looked up at once. But there was nothing to be seen but the whisk of the vines. The woman was gone. The naked man looked up, mimicking very well the amazement of the fisherman. That night, my nephew went to the Newman, which is like the spirit of a place, the proud one, and slit the throat of a young Oreodont, saying, all right, so real quickly, I'm just going to talk about this fish and the woman that appears there. Oh, oh, should we mention the before we go, Oreodont, it's a North American mammal died out almost 3 million years ago. It's a ruminant, right. like an antelope and cattle, but it looked more like a short face pig. Right. All right. So my defense for all this is just saying that all these things, the translation really is not accurately picking up on what they are, even though they're from all over the place, um, that I think this is Africa and that this mm -hmm. is a Zulu tribe and that um, here, right, Isengoma, that Zulu shaman is talking about the vortex that is between the Commonwealth and and the world right there, that kind of that lake is the other end of the mirror that's reflecting the fish, that's reflecting um, Domnina, such mm -hmm. that the woman reflected there, but also that this vine is symbolic of, you know, um, Ask, Ask an Embla or Master Ash and the vine wife from Norse mythology as well, the first and last woman, and that this is going to echo later on in eschatology and Genesis with Meshia and Meshian, kind of the first, the first man and the first woman. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's a lot going on here in the next chapter or uh, two chapters down the road when Dorcas gets Severian out of the lake. Um, Hildegrin is like, oh, look at the fish that she caught, right? So Severian is kind of equated with the fish as well. So there's several things that are going on between a woman in water and a fish, mm -hmm. and that some of it is about that reflective mirrors of father and I, or some of it is about what Severian is going to do with time um, when he, uh, you know, recovers Dorcas there. And some of it is actually, you know, just about that direct vortex interface here. And I think also the feminine presence of the vine, um, the vines, which are the brides of the trees in Book of the Short Sun. So I think all that is already going on um, when, we, when we get to this point. So let me clarify a couple questions, because I really like that because it's getting back to what we talked about with how symbols cross and, and sort of create all these things that you've got all mm -hmm. these symbols sort of reflecting each other in order to make some other story happen in a lot of ways. Yes. Is that right? That you have all these things and they're crossing both literally in the sense that uh, that if I'm guessing what one thing you're suggesting here is that Domnina and the fish in the mirrors were possibly actually connected somehow to this this event that he's talking about with his nephew. Yes. 
Miss Fish and this girl. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Okay. And so, but that's also then saying that part of the reason that is happening is because it's also in a lot of ways, allegorically important because of what's going to happen with Severian. Okay. I got you then. Okay. So I like that a lot because that actually mixes up plot and symbol (laughs) in a lot of fun ways. And, and that's what I think Wolf always does. I think, you know, when he's writing his symbolism is part of the plot and it's like explicitly part of the plot. And, and later, eventually, eventually, um, Severian's going to become the fish god Oenis. So he's going to become that fish. We already know the association with fish through Christianity. This is like a link, the link into an explicit Christianity uh, where the antipolaric brother to the end of time, you know, Christ figure that Severian is, where he has this time cachet, as it were, you know, to do all these things. This is a link to a more genuine antipolaric white brother who is... Christ for all intents and purposes. We see his ministry here and what he's doing. Even to those who don't know about him, there's still a reflection in Unkulukulu in the Zulu. Um, so I think that it's thematically apt as well for that reason. Hmm. Okay. I like that. That actually makes more sense out of some of the things that I had been thinking before as theories for this part, but I think that actually may be stronger connections. No. Hmm. Cool. Okay. So, well, Agia, at this point, is getting exasperated. She says, in the name of the Thea Anthropos. Who is who? Whom is that? <laughs> how long do you plan to stay here? I just go on all day. Well, the Thea Anthropos yeah. is the, the God man. God man. It's a name for Jesus Christ. And who is fully human and fully. Yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. So it's like, it's like Agia saying, Jesus Christ, how long are we going to stay? Yes. And, and Severian says, you know, he, he's going to look around the hut and then they'll go. Meanwhile. Isengoma has branched from the story and is now invoking the Newman on his own. He says, the proud one protects his supplicant. Would he not be shamed if one who adores him were to die? There is no fear for those who wear the sign of the proud one. His breath is the mist that hides the infant Ukaris from the claw of the Margay. An Ukari is a type of South American monkey with a bare red face. A Margay is a kind of South American, Central American uh, cat, sort of like a three foot long jaguar. Would would it hunt? Would it hunt the Eucharist? I who knows? Who knows? You know, maybe yeah. a baby, a baby. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. While while he's doing this, Maria is is heckling him. I don't think we need all these praises for your fetish, Isengoma. My husband wishes to hear your story. Very well, but tell it and spare us your litanies, Isengoma. But Robert says he's afraid, Marie. Can't you hear it in his voice? And Isengoma keeps on. And so she says, Robert, if you won't do something about this, I will. Isengoma, be quiet or leave and never return here again. And But Isengoma says, the proud one knows Isengoma loves the preceptress. He would save her if he could. Isengoma, of course, as I said, calls Marie the preceptress and Robert the preceptor. Marie says, save me from what? Do you think there's one of your dreadful beasts here? If there were, Robert would shoot it with his gun. He says, the Tokoloshi preceptress, the Tokoloshi come, but the proud one in his condensation, condens- yes, <laughs> condensation I want to talk about this. will protect us. He is the mighty commander of all the Tokoloshi. When he roars, they hide beneath the fallen leaves. Okay, let's pause right there. So the Tokoloshi, they're going to hide behind the fallen leaves. Um, condensation. What is condensation? That's where water kind of uh, condenses, right? It mm-hmm. like beads up there. The gas kind of turns into it. Well... Um, the Tokoloshe, um, as far as I understand it, are water spirits 
that were invented to describe a particular phenomenon. They were seen as short uh, dwarves because they noticed when they were burning, um, you know, they had little fires running in their huts that those who slept on the ground tended to die. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the fumes, even though, you know, they didn't understand the fumes and the vapors and the carbon dioxide that was being produced when they were burning some of these plants, reducing the oxygen. Um, but when they slept higher, they tended to not die. And so they had this myth that was created uh, of the tokolosh that, you know, when when people slept on the floor, the tokolosh could come get them and, and die from, you know, smoke inhalation, more or less, and carbon dioxide poisoning. When mm-hmm. they slept higher, they weren't tall enough to reach them. But also they were seen as water spirits. And we know what water connotes in this particular tale the fear right the fear that dorcas has she's afraid of that watery death she fears that water because earth's renewal is going to rely on that water so much and severian too fears water with uh i think the nenuphars and drowning in the lake there's a fear that runs through this entire thing that renewal and and new birth and life that comes through water you also have to be a little bit of afraid of it because it will burn away some things that uh, you may not want to lose, some some vital important things. And there's a cost, right? There's a very real cost involved with them. And I think the Tokolosh here, since they are water spirits, are kind of invoking that cost as well. Because we even get his condensation will protect us, right? You're stopping the water by kind of freezing it up and, mm-hmm. and making it bead and, and confining it. So when he yells to the proud one, do you see the proud one as that, that transformation of a uh monotheistic yes, god. Yes, I think the proud one is Ulankulu. Uh Ulankulu Kulu, right? Yeah, that's that's there's a lot of syllables in that. Um but <laughs> he's he's supposed to be a reflection of the Christian god. So for all intents and purposes, he's an echo of the real god. I think that even though these people call it a different thing, they're worshiping the same transcendent god uh that's kind of coming through creation here. And so you worship it in a false name, but it's still the real thing. So Marie says, "Robert, I think he's lost his mind." And Robert says, he has eyes, Marie, and you don't. And that's one thing I wanted to talk about was why he's Robert on in the one hand could be just more aware of the phantoms that he's seeing right here and, and just more susceptible to them. And, and Marie doesn't for some reason, but there also seems to be something going on with how maybe that Marie doesn't recognize the translation like uh, that, that Robert does seem a little more aware. She's very dogmatic, right? Like when, yeah. when uh, Isengoma responds to the scripture that's read, she's like, no, that's wrong. Instead of taking that valid kind of spiritual take on it that Isengoma has, she's very, mm-hmm. you know, dogmatic and set. And she's not open to these kind of new experiences. Uh, and I think Robert, you know, I think Wolf is a spiritual guy. And so he believes that some people have a numinous sense of the extra spiritual that other people can never experience, really. They just ignore it as if it's not there and she's one of those people i think that closes off things she can't fully understand i think i the explanation for why robert sees them and marie doesn't is is kind of coming up and is hinted at um because when he when he looks at him there's he, he talks about the look right in his face he saw yeah he sees them um, he saw them immediately right so robert uh, marie says this what, you know, what do you mean by that and why do you keep looking out the window and robert slowly turns and he looks at Severian and Najia and then he looks away and Severian says his expression was the one I have seen our clients wear when Master Gerloise showed them the instruments to be used in their anacresis. An anacresis is literally a legal interrogation that is often accompanied by torture. Marie says Robert for goodness sakes tell me what's wrong with you and Robert says as Isengoma says, the Tokoloshi are here. 
Not his, I think, but ours. Death and the lady. Have you heard them, Marie? You wouldn't have, I suppose. It's a picture. An artistic theme, rather. Pictures by several artists. Isengoma, I don't think your proud one has much authority over these tokoloshi. These come from Paris, where I used to be a student, to remonstrate with me for giving up art for this. So I think the reason Robert sees them is because he's an artist. He's an artist. Yeah, he's an artist. Yep. He can touch into that artistic reservoir. I agree. Yeah. So the other thing is that that's suggesting here is that artists seem to have more theological insight. <laughs> theologians. Than, than, than theologians and right. missionaries. Because they have well, to had... look into reality and see something that they can't directly, you know, it's not like it's one-to-one. It's like they see mm-hmm. something more in reality that's beautiful. So Marie goes into her medical chest and she gets out quinine, which is treatment for malaria. You have a fever, Robert. That's obvious. I'm going to give you something and you'll feel better soon. Robert is looking at Severian and Agia. He's compelled to. If I'm ill, Marie, then the diseased know things the well have overlooked. Isengoma knows they're here too, don't forget. Didn't you feel the floor tremble when you were reading to him? That was when they came in, I think. What are they, Isengoma? Tokoloshi, but what are Tokoloshi? And Isengoma says that Tokoloshi are created when men think sinful thoughts or women commit sinful acts. The tokoloshi exist until the end of our world and are the evidence of our sin at that time. And Marie says, what a horrible idea, even though really it's not that different from Christian beliefs. It sounds strange coming from his mouth. Robert says, don't you see that the, the only the results of what we do, they are spirits of the future and we make them ourselves. All right, let's stop right here. So this is one of the most compelling reasons that I have always said that Earth occurs in our future, right? We got Paris, we got scripture. I Mm -hmm. mean, we've got so much stuff. Later on, we're going to get direct quotes from Lewis Carroll, and we say, okay, they are the spirits of the future. We make them ourselves with the good and bad choices that we make. So that Severian and Aegea, they're going to result from the choices we make. And I think so many people read Gene Wolfe and they say, oh, Severian's being manipulated by this thing and that thing and he has no free will. That is not the point at all of this book. I feel like free will is embedded in this at a very deep level and it's ultimately very important such that even if we're manipulated, even if things conspire against us, we can still make those kind of choices and they're still valid. And that's why Master Ash is present because there's still the possibility, even like a a life you live over in a cyclic reality, right? Where you have some, it's possible from the beginning, I had some presentiment of my destiny um, where you have choices that mean something and that some choices lead to that master ash future and some don't and it's the same way here there's still choices that have to culminate in severian and achia however however right i feel like wolf changed his mind as he was writing and became increasingly invested in the cyclical nature of severian i um initially was very resistant to the idea that there had to be more than one Severian in a time cycle because time travel, I felt, could explain almost everything, right? At the end, he's trying to rationalize how, you know, I'm not the first Severian. Um, you know, I've, I've gone to lie in my own mausoleum. I felt like he was trying to rationalize his own existence as Apu Punch-Out before he lived it. So he's like, okay, there had to be somebody before me who was Severian. But when I looked at it again, he does think of himself running through the corridors of time. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that he did something in a previous cycle 
that has resulted in all these powers paying attention to him, but he doesn't understand how he survived the drowning and became autark. And so at first I was very resistant. I was resistant to anything that wasn't like one, a one shot, right? Where it's like mm-hmm. Severian, the previous Severian is Severian. Um, you know, the same Severian. There are a few things in the cycle that work against this. And I think they're later in the books. One of them is actually in the map, um, that, that story, um, about With, uh, Ida. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because in that he talks about Severian as so cruel, like such a cruel face on the coin and how many times Severian beat him. Well, mm-hmm. in the recollection that we have here, Severian only beats him the one time. Um, and then there's a couple other things there you know the guild is still going on with its tortures um it's still extant in the map um and also the timeline doesn't quite match up when you look at the map and what he says about where he was in earth of the new sun so i think that's actually the strongest evidence that there are actually some previous severians who are not as merciful as the one that we get here that he's been impacted and i actually found an interview um let me see here well first um, Severian in the, excuse me, Wolf in this particular interview talks about how, um, at first he really was invested in just, you know, having a future exploration. And then he got interested in cyclical things. And he actually explicitly says that, um, Severian, you know, has drawn attention from a previous cycle and that new things are, uh, are happening to him based on what he'd done in the past. And so those weird things that don't match up, like the Drott and Roach mix-up, or when he's down there in the library with Alton and he thinks, wow, we're both dead. Or when Jaterna in Earth of the New Sun says, oh, I'm going to save you? I didn't know that, but now that you've said it, I'm going to do it. I mean, those things are ultimately, I think, explicable in terms of, of that maybe his memories are mixed up between multiple time cycles, even though I was very resistant to this <laughs> because the first book here, I feel like, Wolf has set up that this is a future world and that that's it, right? That Christ is the conciliator. But I feel like eventually he came to syncretize the conciliator with someone who was not purely Christ, which was Severian. Because when I first read this as a child, I'm like, okay, the conciliator is Christ straight up. I remember that. I remember making that assumption when I read Shadow of the Torture for the first time. That becomes an impossibility given, you know, what happens in Earth of the New Sun. But that doesn't mean that Christ's remnants are not kind of remembered and syncretized with the story of the conciliator, especially if they're anti-polaric brothers. So I think there's syncretism and I think Christ is still extant, especially given the opening of long sun when, you know, we get those, um, silks enlightenment and some dude being executed. Mm -hmm. So I think Christ exists in this, in this time. It's just that, well, maybe there are multiple timelines and Severian is, uh, what we get as almost uh, a paragon of earth toward the end of humanity. There's another way to read it, which is that still is consistent with all of that, which would say that whether or not this, you know, cycle or universe has an actual historical Christ in its past, if it's doing the sort of strong Neoplatonist reading that you're doing, it really doesn't matter because it's the story itself is, and the symbols can make right. that happen in this case through Severian. And eventually it's, it's still there because it's the, the essence of it, that it doesn't depend on that, you know, historical accuracy. I mean, maybe that's a little heretical if you're a, if you're. A but 
I am going to say in this chapter, here we are with Christian missionaries in, you know, wherever they are. And yeah. I feel like that's the antipolaric brother that's being brought up here. That's why it's here. You know, Severian was in his oubliette, you know, being raised in that dark arts. And then here is the spread of Christ's word to a people who, you know, uh, may or may not internalize it. But I, I feel like this, mm -hmm. this is the only real proselytizing that we get. Um, yeah. And so I think it's important. I think it's a very important scene and that, you know, whether it's the same reality or, you know, it's a sideways step, clearly we're supposed to draw some cognate between Severian and Christ, even though he's not explicitly Christ. He does a lot of the same thing. I mean, the water turns into wine in the Inn and Saltus, you know, like it's hard to, yeah. it's hard mm -hmm. to ignore that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think I agree that there is multiple timelines. I think, it looks to me like it, those multiple timelines, which was, I found hard to get my mind around. This was right. the hardest thing I get my mind around originally that we have these, um, these big bangs, grand Ganab cycles, which is very deterministic, but within each of those cycles, there is still a, a mini worlds theory going on with multiple timelines. Master Ash represents that, right. but also multiple timelines going forward in the future and going back into the past. Things that could have led to this, this point and things that from this point might still happen. Only the, the present has a probability of one. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I suppose I see it differently, but I think, uh, but I do think we agree kind of in that way that the multiple timelines yeah. give it a, a, a degree of choice. Right. Exactly. And last thing I would say is that even if there are multiple severians, I don't think that necessarily eliminates free will No, because no, you still not. have, it depends on, you know, who you, it just becomes a much more complicated mm -hmm idea of will if you have someone saying hey i could make my life better by making certain choices that would influence me to become something else well that's an yeah. act of will um but then that person still has to act on on those manipulations or or circumstances or whatever i mean it's it just becomes way much more complicated but wolf is already like you talked about earlier talked about how we don't know the true outcome of our actions until the end you can still have free will even mm -hmm. in a, a crazy complicated consequentialist right. kind of situation. So, yeah, anyway. So, well, Maurice says, well, they are a lot of pagan nonsense. That's what I see, Robert. And then she says, listen, what do you hear? And then Severian hears the humming of an airplane. Severian says, quote, a faint humming as though an insect as large as a boat were flying far away. It's the mail plane. Robert looks out the window and Severian goes to the window and he looks out with him. Severian describes it this way. Quote, into view came the strangest flyer I had ever seen. It was winged as if it had been built by some race that had not yet realized that since it would not flap wings like a bird in any case, there was no reason its lift like a kite's could not come from its hull. There was a bulbous swelling on each argent pinion. That's just a fancy way of saying silver wing. And a third bulbous swelling at the front of the hull. So the light seemed to glimmer before these swellings. The swellings, of course, are propellers. So this is taking place in the 30s or 40s. Marie 
yeah, Marie offers to leave more or less. She's like, hey, we could be we could be there in three days. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> be at the landing strip when the plane yeah. comes again, <laughs> and they could just get out of there. And but Robert says, if the Lord has sent us here, which is kind of a backtracking on what he says, he he has left being an artist to be a missionary, and he thinks that this death in the maiden trope has come back to haunt him because of that, but he still feels that he's here because God sent him here. And so he says, well, if the Lord sent us here, you know, essentially we have to stay. And Isengoma says, yes, Preceptor, we must do what the proud one wishes. There is none like he, Preceptress, let me dance to the proud one and sing his song. And then maybe the Tokoloshi will de- depart. And he grabs the Bible from Marie and begins to slap it in rhythm like a tambour. A tambour is a, a drum. So a tambourine is a little drum. In his dance, his feet scrape the floor and his voice, beginning with a melodic stridulation, becomes the voice of a child. A stridulation is a shrilling. So he starts singing in falsetto. He sings, in the night when all is silent, hear him screaming in the treetops. See him dancing in the fire. He lives in the poison arrow, tiny as a yellow firefly. It's brighter than a falling star. Hairy men walk the forest. Uh, I think the Tokoloshi are said to be hairy men. He says he he comes when the sun is setting, see his feet upon the water, tracks of flame across the water. Okay. So yeah, this, this right here, in the night when all is silent. So obviously, right, I think this refers back to Severian's position at the end of time there, right? or at the end of the sun, really less, right? Where we got the darkness, hear him screaming in the treetops. Well, you guys already know about how I feel about the trees and what's going on mm-hmm. there. Um, but initially, right, I, I also think that this is related to that se- that vision in the second chapter, which was supposed to be the first chapter, where, you know, the new sun comes and then s- something will make that bush, uh, the brush come alive and run up the tree and leaves will sprout feelers, right? Hear him screaming in the treetops, see him dancing in the fire. What makes a fire? Well, normally in these situations, they're burning the trees. Um, he lives in the arrow poison. What is the poison arrow? Well, for the most part with these, um, you know, with these tribes, even though there were a lot of animal byproducts, you were also usually using toxic leaves that were made to be arrow poison. So we get all of this imagery of, you know, the trees and tree byproducts in the fire that I think is important juxtaposed against that night when fire is coming, which is, I mean, I think parallels the coming of the new sun as well. The hairy men walk in the forest. Yeah, you're right. That's just the Tokolosh there. But in this case, um, Severian is, is, is equated there, but the forest becomes kind of that, that big, that big key image there. Um, when the sun is setting, see his feet upon the water, tracks of flame across the water. But what's going to come when the new sun comes, obviously that watery deluge. So you're going to see that sun reflected in the water there. So I think that this is another, you know, case of a hologram where the bigger implication of the new sun coming involves, right? Um, it involves the trees. It involves water. It involves that sun. It involves flooding and the path of the new sun, um, that miraculous path, really. So even though he's talking about the proud one, um, really, he's also talking about Severian and the new sun there, I think. Hairy men in the forest could actually be the green man. Yeah, it really <laughs> could. Like, yeah, it could. It could. I mean, in the dark, he just looks hairy. He doesn't look yeah, like you know, yeah. he's got algae all over him or right. something. Right, like it could be. But then, yeah, those last lines, too. So he comes when the sun is setting. Mm-hmm. See his feet on the water, tracks of flame across the water. Yeah, and I think that's new sun imagery. Mm-hmm. 
Well, yeah, well, it's definitely because you know when the sun is setting, it becomes the it is the sun, right? Yeah, because yeah, you uh-huh. you can see him at the treetops. Yep, he's the tiny as a yellow firefly. When the sun's setting, his feet is on the water. Well, that's what happens. Yeah, it's when the sun, the sun reflected sets there. Yep. Right, mm-hmm. and the tracks of flame across the water because you see the 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 uh, light from the sun shine reflected yeah. on the water. Yep, it's about the sun. So Agia has had enough. She starts to walk out. I'm leaving, Severian. If you want to stay and watch this, you can. But you'll have to get your Avern yourself and find your way to the sanguinary fields. Do you know what will happen if you don't show up and appear? They'll send assassins that will use a snake called Yellowbeard. A Yellowbeard is a highly is a South American highly venomous pit viper. But they won't use it on Severian first. Oh, no. They'll go after his family, if he has any family. And otherwise, they'll go after his friends. And since she's been seen with them everywhere, that means her. See, this is what I am talking. I was talking about before, Mark, that this plan of Agia and Agilis's doesn't scale. It only works on someone who is incredibly naive. Right. Her claims are so outlandish that only a naif could be expected to believe them. It's like a child. Oh, you know, the boogeyman's going to come and get you if you don't do what I say. Maybe she's like this because she can see how naive Severian is. But this sort of con, it just, like I said, it doesn't scale generally. So Severian and Agia leave. Isengoma keeps chanting, but he knows they're going. And you can tell by the way he sings. As they walk away, Severian remarks, did you see their flyer? It was like no other flyer I've ever seen. I should have been looking at the roof facets of this building, but instead I saw the flyer he expected to see. At least that's what it seemed like. Something from somewhere else. So what's that? This is another confirmation, Mark, that they are actually not in the botanical gardens, right. but someplace else. I don't know. Like I said, the, the inconsistencies with time and place bother me. They but, don't bother me because I feel like <laughs> Father and Heir's mirrors are working as intended. They're oh. kind of over there and they're kind of here. They're in both places. Well, I definitely it's believe that. I believe that there is some element of time. He, they are definitely reflect. That's how they work, right? They're reflecting from another universe. And I mean, what does time. he bring up right now? This is what he brings up. So this is this is what we get. This is how it works. Wait a minute. Because we know that they're reflecting and that they, they draw their reflections from outside the universe... Doesn't that mean that this Robert and Marie and Isengoma are definitely not in Severian's universe? No, no, because it can be from time too. I don't, I don't feel like it has to be space. I feel like space and time are infinitely related in Wolf. And so I don't think necessarily that has oh. to follow. I think, I think Wolf used time, uh, views time as a kind of space. Well, Severian uses the story of Domnina from the last chapter. He says, a little while ago, I was going to tell you about a friend of mine who was caught in Father Aniri's mirrors. She found herself in another world. Even when she returned, she wasn't quite sure she had found her way back to a real point of origin. I wonder if we aren't in the world those people left instead of them in ours. Um, I should say, in, in the last chapter, I explained, I think that based on this, that Two things. I think that Domnina fell into the, one of those mirrors. And that's why it took him so long, because Father Aniri had to recreate her from those mirrors in order to bring her back to her mother. But because she was in another 
timeline and another universe, Domnina recognizes the slight changes in the world. So even though, she, oh, look, here's my friend, Thekla, here's all these, she regularly sees things that are slightly different from the world she left because she was recreated from a different universe. That is Could my, be. that is Could my be. curiositas earthus. Okay. <laughs> Asia has her own explanation. She says, I told you certain visitors are attracted to certain bioscapes. As time goes on, their minds bend to conform to their surroundings. It may be the timescapes bend ours as well. Yes, yes. It, it was probably an ordinary flower uh, flyer that you saw. No, Asia, no. Severia remarks that Robert and Isengoma saw them as well. And Asia says, from what I've heard, the further an inhabitant's conscious must be warped, in other words, assuming that Isengoma was Anessa's visitor who became embedded in the diorama, he would be the most changed from his original self. The more that your conscious must has to be warped, the more the residual perceptions are likely to remain. When I meet monsters, wild men, and so forth in these gardens, I find they're a lot more likely to be at least partially aware of me than others. But Severian then posits, then what about Robert? I didn't build this place, Severian. All I know is that if you turn around on the path now, the last place we saw probably won't be there. That's entirely true. I suspect. He might not even be able to get back because this place is like an Ikea. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Ajia says that as soon as they get out of there, they have to go straight to the Garden of Indus Sleep. They don't have time to go anywhere else, not even the precious Garden of Delectation that she's been wanting to go to since they got here. Anyway, this isn't a good place for Severian to go sightseeing in, not only because he was so enraptured by the Sand Garden. She says, you're going to make trouble for me sooner or later, I think. Just as she said that, Severian records that they rounded one of the path's seemingly endless sinuosities a log tagged with a small white rectangle that could only be a species sign lay across the path. So they've come back to where they were. And through the crowding leaves on our left, I could see the wall, its greenish clash forming an unobtrusive backdrop to the foliage. There's the door. Severian opens it for Asia. And that's the end of the chapter. Well, she had actually taken a step past it, too. Like yeah, she didn't yeah. see it. Severian saw it. Right. So right. He, he was a little keyed in now at that point. And so, I mean, obviously, you know, I was once upon a time known as the voluble tree guy about short sun. But um, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like these trees are all throughout new sun and that they're ultimately very important. They're involved in a lot of time warping and a lot of things that serve as the backdrop that they're always there, including in the uh, kind of uh, Eucharist scene that we get with Vodalus of Lord of the, the Wood, more or less, the liege, you know, the liege of the wood. Um, so they're everywhere. They're in this, the Avern bends space as well. Like it's it's kind of like a, what a car rear view mirror, right? Objects in the Avern are closer than they appear. Uh, you <laughs> yeah. know, and that's, that's what's going to happen there. So I feel like really there is a relationship between space and time. And, you know, when Aegea says that new races, uh, the, one of the powers of the claw is that new races will spring up from the soil. I mean, we got to take all that stuff literally. That's part of Gene Wolfe's plan. That's what's going on. And I, I feel like the botanical gardens are another um, kind of presentiment of the importance of that foliage for all the weird things that they do and the way that they're kind of outside of space and time as well. I remember when you bring us up on the on the Earth list, 
And people say, well, I don't recall anyone mentioning any lianas or inhumi in the in the new sun. So how could they how could they have returned to Ushus in this uh, story? And I remember you saying, well, I'm going to go find those. <laughs> and but honestly, I don't think it's necessary to to have located. The, I think they're very far but, in the future. But there but, is but there is the liana in the botanical garden. It is here. true that mm-hmm. they the lianas right at the are entrance, there. Yes. There are lianas yes. there. Yes. Yeah, it's, and even more important than that, just the, the fact that whether or not he had that all fleshed out in the back of his head, the, the fact that vegetative foliage is part of the area and the, the, the backdrop of everything whenever those things happen. That's true. It's, it's there. It's yeah. there nonetheless. And it's connected to the green man. Yes. If, if nothing else, it's connected to the green man as what's going to come out. It's going to be connected to some kind of new vegetative human. Right. And the tale of the tale of the boy called uh, Frog at the very start, right? We're going to get um, spring wind is going to be born when his mother early summer is impregnated by a tree. So, I mean, the stuff is mm-hmm. in the book of the new sun. You know, it's in yeah. there. It's just uh, we may not agree on how literally it's supposed to be applied to the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, I I do see your point. No, I've, I've as you know, I've always been um, strangely attracted. I feel like I, y- your theories are like Asia for Severian. Yeah, I'm strangely <laughs> attracted to them. So that's because they're right. That's they're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that was really useful because I feel like I've got a lot more connections now. I mean, I ha- I had a sort of running theory about. Severian seeing something old and Christian and how that related to what something him, but I was always been confused by Isangoma. That actually, though, you've sort of connected a bunch of dots for me with this one that I'm glad. I think work. I'm glad. Um, especially with other parts of the gardens and why the, it, it makes the gardens feel like a little more thematically connected now. So for me, I feel like I know how the story of the, of the mirrors, why it shows up here. We've got this, we've got the sand garden. So the, the trick now is with, um, the Garden of Endless, Endless Sleep. How does that relate to these? And so for me, that'll be putting things together to connect the images and the themes. And the one of the things that I argue is that Wolf is extremely like, you know, you know, Chekhov's gun, he goes beyond Chekhov's gun. Everything is so unified that when two things are juxtaposed a couple different times, it's because they're related. I mean, he's very precise in that kind of scaffolding. And so um, once I see those patterns, I mean, I, I, I really, I reread these things so many times. I don't do that to New Sun because as I said, I don't feel like it needs me to do that kind of thing. I think it, you know, some mystery should remain there. But in his later work, right, they're so precise in the way that certain structures create this meaning that then runs throughout and makes thematic sense. It has to make thematic sense. If it doesn't add anything thematically, um, you know, then, then I don't think it's the right explanation, but I think Wolf really is rigid, even though I do believe that there is one major change. As I said, that he started by envisioning this as the future and then later started to see it as a cyclical pattern. And so he changes some of the implications toward the end of Citadel, the Autark, but um, you know, Heck, nobody is absolutely perfect, but I think Wolf comes pretty close in New Sun. Well, great. And next is is called Dorcas. So yes. I don't need yes. to explain to anyone what that means. So Exactly. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Mark, this was great. This is great. Thank I've been looking so forward to for this for on. so long. So Yep. Me too. And we're definitely going to have you back again. Yeah, definitely. And I'm down for eschatology and Genesis or whatever. You just. Oh, oh yeah. We were talking about wanting to have somebody do that one. Well, 
Oh yeah, we're gonna need all the help in the world with that. We may yes. have to bring in. Okay. We may have to bring people. in a console for that. Everyone. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Not because I think I don't. It think it's you can make sense of it. I just want someone else to do the work for me. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. So thank you, Mark. That was a lot of fun. Bring your comments, thoughts, corrections, and complaints to us on Facebook group subreddit twitter or email check us out on instagram subscribe at podbean your podcast app and youtube playlist you can find out how to do all this on the show notes leave a review on apple Podcasts and tell your wolf reading friends and until you hear from us next may the moira favor you (laughs) and if you have anything for mark that you want to talk to feel free to just dm him directly and he will probably respond in selfies of his highly overdeveloped upper body (laughs) and maybe some talk about wolf just fair warning (laughs) all right well thanks everybody all right thank you must be somewhere to be found Instead of concrete a jungle Illusion and confusion Concrete jungle You name it, we've got it No change around my feet I'm not free So, um, I'm sorry, I was talking on mute to myself because I'm back here trying to <laughs> guzzle, uh, eat real fast since I haven't had dinner. But, um, oh, I'm sorry, hang on, I might be quoting him. It's one thing when you write everything down, Craig. Okay, no, this is me, I recognize me. Okay, try again.